last time I was here, I was hanging out and I got to enjoy the company of these guys in the worship band, the tech crew and all that stuff. And um, Chris, Chris was gone and, and so he had charged Charlie with hanging out with me. I think it was kind of one of those things, hey, Ryan needs a friend, you're, you're up, you know, kind of deal. And so he was really kind and uh, we hung out and we had lunch and stuff together. And um, as part of getting to hang out together, I just, you know, started asking Charlie about his story. And he's probably shared with you some of his journey before in his life. But it's, it's interesting to me, especially because he has, like I said, gifts and talents that are so different than mine. And to hear his story of, you know, coming from uh, college and out of college and moving across, you know, the nation and, you know, coming to New York and sacrificing and, you know, what him and his wife went through to use their gifts and their talents and the arts and to try to make it on Broadway and, you know, all of the auditions that he went through and the script development, the music development, and like just so much that he had to, you know, give away for free to use his gifts and his abilities. And, and as I heard his story, like, um, the word that connected with his, his story which connects with this scripture, which really connected with me was the word sacrifice. Like it was easy as I heard about his journey all the way to being here and, and leading worship and sharing that piece of who he is and those gifts with you and with God that like it was easy to see that thread of sacrifice in his story. And yet while I could see it and I could enjoy it, like from a personal level, I couldn't really relate to it. Because again, I I just don't have those skills. Um, I do relate with like physical sacrifice. I relate with endurance sports. I relate with um, athletics. I relate with, you know, I can watch the Olympics a lot like you guys and appreciate, uh, you know, the greatness of the accomplishments that you're seeing in the athletic field. But at the same time, as a a guy who really enjoys athletics, I know a, a small piece of what goes into the sacrifice that it takes to, for those athletes to get um, to that level. Because of that, when I think of the word sacrifice, I think of these you know, athletic types of things. And I wanted to share with you, um, you might not know this or appreciate it as much as I do, but out of curiosity, I kind of had to go and look up like, what are the greatest endurance feats of all time? So I'm going to share a few of these with you. Um, there were seven of them. I added the eighth one because I thought it needed to belong to the list, so I'm going to tell you about them. The first one, like on this list of, you know, the eight of the greatest endurance feats of all time. You might not know this, but three men uh, ran 4,000 miles across the Sahara Desert in 111 days. Um, If that doesn't sound like much, they ran the equivalent of two marathons a day for 100 days to become the first modern runners to cross the Sahara Desert's grueling 4,000 miles. They ran this. Um, They were stricken with tendonitis, severe uh, diarrhea, and knee injuries, all while running through intense heat and wind and often without a paved road in sight. Temperatures varied from over 100 degrees during the day to below freezing at night. This is what a typical day looked like. They were up at 4 a.m., run until lunch, eat, run again until 9.30. Then get up and do it all again for 111 days. Crazy. Uh, Number two, I can't pronounce this guy's name, Zhu Zinjun, I think. He ran a 343 marathon backwards. (laughs) Backwards. Uh, In a world where 99% of people never finish marathons in their lifetimes, and of those who do... 90% 90% don't run under four hours. Zoo of China managed both in reverse. 
Like, I don't even know where this guy begins. Like, I, my personal best marathon ever is 3.23. I'm trying to qualify for Boston, and then this guy is trying to do it backwards. Like, where does that, like, oh, I'm just going to run it backwards. I, I, don't, does, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Number three on the list, uh, Mark Covert has run at least one mile every day since July 23rd, 1968. 1968, he has over 136,000 miles logged in his lifetime. Uh, During the peak of his career, he logged 150 miles a week. He was part of the 1972 Olympic team. And since 1968, he's run at least one mile. He has uh, run a mile on the day his kids were born. He ran at least a mile on the day his parents died. He has not given up since 1968. Sacrifice. Um, number four, seven days, seven continents, seven marathons. Seven days, seven continents, seven marathons. I don't know what Antarctica was like. It doesn't say much. But uh, the pair ran seven marathons in seven days on these seven continents from October 26th to November 2nd, 2003. And it talks about, like, the biggest challenge was the logistics of the flights and the jet lag and the recovery trying to do that. Number five. Um, Ethio- another name I can't pronounce, Ethiopia's Hale Jabralasi Marathon. He, has a mar- he holds the marathon world record. He ran the marathon in two hours, four minutes, 36 seconds. And it says he crushed the previous time in 2007 when he set that record by 30 seconds. I didn't know 30 seconds was crushing it. Uh, but, you know, these days, two hours, six minutes is kind of a common winning time. But two hours, four minutes, in case 36 seconds, in case you want to know how that translates, that's four minutes, 48 seconds per mile pace for 26 miles. Most marathoners can't even run in the sub fours or sub fives. And he did it four, four minutes, 48 seconds per mile for 26 miles. Crazy. Um, number six on... Eightest greatest endurance feats of all time. We're talking about sacrifice. Finishing Badwater. I don't know if you've heard of this race before. Um, I had heard of it, but I didn't quite know what it was. Plain and simple, Badwater is the toughest endurance run in the world. Each year, approximately 70 people attempt to run the 135 miles from Badwater Death Valley to the portals of Mount Whitney. In case you're not familiar with Badwater or Mount Whitney, Badwater is the lowest place in the Western Hemisphere, and Mount Whitney is the highest point in the contiguous United States. Basically, you're running from the lowest place in the U.S. to the highest, in addition to the 13,000 feet worth of ascent, there are the 130-degree temperatures in the desert to deal with. Uh, Participants are forced to run on white lines on the side of the road to keep the soles of their shoes from melting off and a heat suit to keep them from frying in the sun. The winner in the last two years has finished an average time between 24 and 25 hours straight of running in those conditions. Um, But the typical finisher is 35-hour range. I didn't even stay awake for 35 hours. Okay? Um, Number seven on the list uh, the most incredible endurance feats of all time. Dean Carnes. What's with the crazy names? Okay, can Joe Smith do something? Um, uh, ran 350 miles nonstop. He participated in this race called the Relay, which is a 200-mile and supposed to be 12-person relay race. He Not only did he do it by himself, 
But because the race wasn't near his home, he ran the 75 miles to the race, ran the 200-mile race, and then ran the 75 miles back home. Uh, He burned 40,000 calories. Uh, He has also finished the Western 100 race 10 times. That Badwater event, he's done it four times. And most recently, he ran 50 marathons in 50 consecutive days in all 50 United States. Dude is crazy. Uh, Sacrifice, sacrifice. This is my personal favorite. I put it on the list. I don't know what it says about me, but we have some amazing Olympic athletes. And this one just came back from the London Olympics. His name is Nick Simons. Maybe you heard about that this week. He just ran a mile in 519, uh, which isn't very impressive until you realize he chugged four beers along the way. Uh, He was gunning for the world record in something called the beer mile this week. Which requires athletes to chug an entire full-size brewski at the beginning of the race, another full can of suds every quarter mile to mark along the way. Um, uh, He finished uh, fifth in the 800-meter race in the Olympics uh, just recently, in case you wanted to know. And he missed the world record, which is actually five minutes, nine seconds. Um, He chased the record uh, with crowds cheering him on in Oregon this week. So... um, the beer mile. I thought it was a pretty incredible feat. I was like, that's a lot of sloshing. That's a lot of beer. It could be fun, but it's a lot of sloshing. Um, I know I have a depraved mind. When I think of sacrifice, um, I don't often think of like the arts. I think of physical feats. And the questions that I start asking is like, what drives people to these limits? What, what motivates this level of personal sacrifice? Why would these uh, people do these things and put themselves through these experiences. Like, I want to know why, like the underlying motives for sacrifice. These things are crazy. When people think of Christians and they see examples of our faith, maybe like a Mother Teresa, I think people in the world often ask the same sort of questions. Why? Why would Christians sacrifice at that level? What motivates them? So I want to talk about that for just a moment. And I think that Chris probably talked about this a little bit last week as well. As you looked at the beginning of this passage of Scripture, it says, Therefore, brother, I urge you in view of God's mercy. See, this concept of mercy, it's, it's like a hinge in this passage. We're going to talk about the second half of the passage, but you can't not talk about the word mercy as we look at this entire passage in context. Romans chapter 9 and chapter 10, Paul's trying to help us as you back up and look before you get to this verse, Paul's trying to help us understand why this thing, this idea called mercy is such an important concept. See, he, he looks at it from the perspective of the Jewish people. Paul is Jewish. He says he's a Jew of Jews in other passages. He's, uh, you know, the most diligent in following God's laws. And he looks back on the history of this relationship with God, and he points out what mercy actually means. 
In, in chapters 9 and 10, he walks you all the way through what it meant for the people to have to be diligent in their service and in their relationship with God. He points out the sacrifice system and the temple rituals and all of the laws. And he talks about how the, the Jewish people, in relationship with God, had to honor God and follow through on all of these things in order to be in relationship with God. And through this entire system that God has set up for them to be able to be acceptable in his sight, the people still fail over and over and over and over again. And God is trying to help them to see that, like, you're here and we're separated by sin and I'm over here. And for us to be able to come together, there has to be sacrifice. And so he gives them this sacrificial worship system. And Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verse 16, it says, It does not depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. We are able to have a relationship, not because of our effort or our desire, but because of God's mercy. God is merciful towards us. And God's mercy, Paul wants us to know, changes everything. It's undeserved, it's unmerited, it changes the heart, it changes your perspective. It changes the game, according to Paul. It's God's mercy that enables us to have a relationship with him. When you were kids, how many of you guys um, at least entered into, if not enjoyed, the mercy game? Go ahead, you know what I'm talking about? Like, you put, go ahead, put your arms out. You can picture it, do, at least do it on the inside. Pretend we're not all looking at each other. And we would put our hands out on the playground, or maybe it was with a sibling. For me, it was with my older sister. Uh, don't ask me how I fared, because it's kind of embarrassing. But, you know, we'd, we'd put our hands out, we'd spread our fingers. The person standing opposite would lock their fingers inside of ours, and then either you would just go upon gripping, or there was some sort of countdown, which was always to be disputed. You go on three or after three. And then, and then, um, and then it would, it was just like, I think the goal was like to swing it around as fast as possible, catch your opponent off guard, and then to elevate, you know, push up. Like you're in CrossFit, you know, I'm, yeah, you know, and you're trying to get them into this mercy position, wrenching their hands backwards. Like, you know, this is how you sometimes would settle disputes. Like, oh, let's see who's strongest. My sister, stinking, she always won. Always. Ugh, hated it. And I preferred that over her other methods of beating me down. But, you know... It's the game of mercy. In our house, my boys don't play this game. I don't know if it's because I haven't taught them or they don't think it's as fun or old school or what, but they like to wrestle it out. You know, they, my two older sons, they get into these wrestling matches and I uh, bought them boxing gloves too. Shh, don't tell anybody. Um, and they like to, you know, they're like, Dad, can we wrestle? Can we wrestle? And they're really close in age, and they'll wrestle and wrestle. And their version of the mercy game is when one person is sitting on top. It's not real wrestling. It's like... WWF wrestling or something because it, they don't use the rules. And, um, and it's pinning the other one down and it's getting to the point where they've scooted all up. You know, they've fixed the other guy's arms underneath their knees and they're sitting over them and they got a loogie ready. You know, that's their version of mercy. And the other one's on bottom. I'm mercy, mercy. In our house, we uh, use it. You, I don't know where it came from. Don't ask me. We use the term nachos. I don't know. It's the safe word. Like it's your mercy word. And, um, and, and like they're screaming on the, on the bottom for mercy. 
Here's the thing about mercy. Mercy comes from the person in the power position. Mercy comes from the one on top. Mercy goes first. Mercy is a version of sacrifice. It's giving up. It's choosing not to. Mercy offers something from the person in the power position. God has given us a gift through his son, Jesus Christ. He offered up. He gave us mercy at a cost. And it's this word, that it's the hinge word in this scripture, in this verse, that it's in view of God's mercy that we offer ourselves up, or offer our bodies as living sacrifice. It's a daily paradigm shift. In view of God's unlimited mercy, what can I offer? Um, in view of God's unlimited patience with me, how can I not be patient? In view of God's unlimited love for me, how can I not be more loving? In view of God's unlimited gentleness with me, should I not also extend that to others? In view of God's unlimited desire to know me, for me, how can I keep that just to myself? In view of God's unlimited provision, in view of God's unlimited strength, in view of God's unlimited holiness, in view of God's instruction, in view of God's mercy, what kind of offering does that create inside of me? Our daily worship begins and proceeds with the constant knowledge that God is merciful towards us. God loves us regardless of where we have been. He loves us regardless of what we have done. God loves us regardless of whatever baggage we are currently carrying. That's God's mercy. Worship had been what we do to earn God's grace. That's the Old Testament system. The system of laws and sacrifice, the system of rituals and the temple and the priests and the intercession, that had been our view of worship. Worship actually is what we do to acknowledge God's grace. Worship actually is what we do to acknowledge God's mercy. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God. I hear from people often, like, I read the scriptures and I don't understand it. Like, I read this verse and, you know, like, after two, like, unless I'm on, like, a quad shot of espresso or something from, you know, from Starbucks, like, I'm just, I'm, I'm lost, you know. I can't pay attention. I, I don't get it. Bible study doesn't have to be complicated. I don't even have a PhD in theological thingies, you know, like it's, it's pretty simple. You, you read the verse, maybe you reread the verse. For me, I read the verse, I reread the verse, I read the verses before it, I read the verses after it. If I really still don't understand it, I try to back up a little bit and look ahead just a bit. Um, I break it down word by word. Bible study doesn't have to be complicated. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Another way of putting it might be willingly give up yourselves on an ongoing basis. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. 1 Corinthians says this about our bodies in chapter 9, about offering our bodies. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one gets the prize? Run in such a way to get the prize. 
Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. He's probably not doing the beer run. I'm just saying. Uh, I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and I make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul says in his verse in Corinthians that when it comes to sacrificing his body as a living sacrifice, he goes about it with the same sort of intensity and the training that some of these extreme feats of endurance would go through. Like he's going to be disciplined in his sacrifices, offering back to God. Sacrifice, it's, it's an unpopular word in our culture. In fact, I think our culture often doesn't even recognize the word sacrifice for what it truly means. The term is used metaphorically to describe selfless good deeds for others or a short-term loss in return for a greater power or gain in the future. It's also come to mean uh, doing without something or giving something up. Here's what I know about the word sacrifice. Sacrifice to you is not the same as sacrifice to me. Sacrifice is a relative term. And this isn't like, you know, one of them squishy, like modern day theology. Oh, it's all relative. No, sacrifice truly is relative. You can ask me for $5. And if I had my wallet on me, which I conveniently don't, oftentimes, um, you know, but if I had my wallet on me and you asked me for $5, there's probably a whole list of things that you could qualify the need for that $5 on. And if you're a really good friend or my wife and you ask me for $5, I don't even ask why. I've learned not to ask why. I just will give you the $5, especially if you're my wife. And, and I'll just give it. But if you ask my kids for $5, well, let me tell you what $5 represents to my kids. First of all, it represents 25% of their monthly spending power. In our house, you get $20 as part of being a part of the family, doing your responsibilities, your chores, your homework. You know, you're in our family. You get to learn how to manage $20 if you're one of my sons. I don't have any daughters, so don't be confused. They're not left out. I just don't have any. Um, <laughs> the women are like, he doesn't give his girls anything. <laughs> Um, I don't have any. I prayed to God I wouldn't have any, and he blessed me, okay? Uh, um, I, I, I'm, a, I, I'm not a sexist. I just grew up with three sisters, no brothers. I honestly did pray that prayer um, and see it as a blessing. Um, so, but thank you for those of you who had them for my sons to marry. Um, so anyways, back to the $5. So $5 is a big deal to them. It's 25%. You know, some of my sons, they see it as if they were to loan you or give you uh, $5, then they would see that as, oh, well, you just took away from my potential gaming purchases. You know, they're way into video games, you know, and they're saving up for one. Another one of my sons would see it as a loss five days um, where he, on his way home from school, cannot stop at Walgreens to pick out his favorite after-school snack. He just enjoys that. Like, Walgreens is on his way home. He's at an age now where we trust him. And, uh, and you know, he 
you know, regardless of how many snacks we've got at home for after school, there's something about like that candy aisle, you know, at Walgreens where it's just filled with choices and he's got the power in his pocket to make whatever choice he wants. You know, so if you asked him for $5, he would see that as you just took away, you know, potentially five, seven days worth of, you know, candy purchasing power after school. Like how bad do you need this $5, right? So for him... The sacrifice is different than if you ask me for $5. Sacrifice is a relative term, and it's a personal. It's God personalizes it to you. Holy and pleasing to God. I mean, this part of the scripture talks about God's standards, not our standards. Holy and pleasing to God. Not like what do we think is holy and pleasing, but what does God see? As holy and pleasing. Micah 6, 6 to 8 puts it like this. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? That's That's a lot of olive oil. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. We are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And what does God see as holy and pleasing? What does this sacrifice look like? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. Worship is our response to God with our lives. It's not his commandment. It's not the thing that he's forcing out of us. Worship is our difficult personal disciplines. It's not our easy tips, our change, our leftovers. God is looking for that internal response that wells up within you. It's the mercy hinge. In view of God's mercy, we offer back to him. The last portion of this this scripture says, your spiritual act of worship. As I said in the beginning, sacrifice doesn't make much sense to me without the why. The motivator. What is it that's motivating us to be willing to sacrifice back to God? I think some of those whys are deep down we're wired, we know it, we're created to be in relationship with God. That's the why. We want that real relationship with God. We want to know God. We want to have a sense that we are living with God, and as we connect with God, the why in our sacrifice is because of the mercy, because of our understanding, our connection, that those aha moments where we go, oh, we get God, we get it, we, get, we understand now what you have done for us. Um, our spiritual acts of worship, they're personal. They're personal to me, they're personal to you, because they're relative. 
It's what you do. It's what you say. It's the reflection of your heart and your mind. Uh, It's your gifts and your abilities and your capabilities uh, that you give and offer to him. It's all of you back to him. What is a sacrifice? It's a gift tailored from you back to God. God, I surrender. God, I trust. God, I love. God, I obey. God, I choose to serve. God, I want, I want to worship you. As a parent, I know it's one of my jobs to uh, instruct, to train up my children in the way that they should go. And one of the things um, that I'm, I'm trying really hard to train my children is, is this concept of thankfulness and the ability to recognize when to be thankful. I mean, they have so much to be thankful. I have so much to be thankful. But, you know, kids are kids and boys are boys and, and they get busy and they, like so many of us, even as adults, we consume, we take in, we experience, and we don't often recognize when to be thankful. So as a parent, you probably, some of you have been there. It's like you have kids and they receive something good and you're trying to like help them. And so like in front of the other people that maybe they've gotten this blessing from, you're saying, you know, hey, Jackson, can you tell your grandma, thank you for that Christmas gift? You know, grandma sacrificed. She got you something. She was very thoughtful. She went shopping. She endured the crowd. She gave it to you. She wrapped it up. Can you just say thanks? You know, like, and they're just like, ah, you know, or, um, you know, that's kind of how you feel maybe. Or you go over to a friend's house and they lay out a nice dinner for you and they do some special things for your kids and they play and they go swimming and all that stuff. And you know how kids are. They just bounce out the door, go get in the car and they don't say thanks. And so you kind of kind of have to pull them back in and you're trying to help them to understand, please tell Mr. and Mrs. Skogobo, thank you. You know, and, 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 you know, you're wishing they would just do it on their own, right? Like you're wishing they would just recognize. But you know, as a parent, it's a process and you're it's a training but you but when it happens like when on their own your kids recognize that they've been given something amazing or wonderful or good or that somebody else sacrificed to give them and you see in that moment that your kids say thank you that your kids express gratitude man like i mean Hopefully you've been there as a parent just once, like you know, those moments you live for, right? Like you just to see your kids, like they, they get it. Like they're not the slowest kid in the class. You know, they, they, they do appreciate their hearts are tender. Their minds are open and they recognize the gift that they've been given. Worship is our daily devotion. It's not our one-time promise to God. Worship is a continuous uh, pursuit of God. It's not a momentary event. As we, uh, we are going to head into a reflective time here towards the end of this teaching. And I just ask that you uh, would allow God to speak to you. That you would allow God to... Uh, speak to your heart, to speak to your mind, that he would speak uh, to your worship. Maybe he would speak to you for the very first time about his mercy. Allow him to speak. Sit 
uh, contemplatively. And I know that the guys from the worship team have also prepared some slides and some music to also give you some insights and other ideas about reflection when it comes to spiritual worship. Uh, Let's pray together. God, thanks for um, opening your scripture to us and personalizing it for us. And right now, be with us. Help us uh, to draw near to you and you to us as we reflect upon your mercy and upon uh, our worship back to you.